Well, we want to look at 1 Thessalonians. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are nearing the end of church, and we are in the third of, of several sermons now on a, a series of, of imperatives uh, that the Apostle Paul leaves with the church after some extended time in, in uh, both recalling history and thanking God for the great work that he had done and, and then giving instruction on uh, the day of the Lord, the rapture, and so on, Paul now brings his letter to an end with a series of exhortations regarding church life. In some ways, this is like the house rules. Uh, what, what are the house rules for the, 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 the body of Christ in a, in a local assembly? And we have been looking at these now for several weeks. Uh, these are found in chapter 5, verses 12 to 22, exhortations regarding church life. We've looked at two sections of this already uh, in verses 12 to 13 to leadership, how they are to relate to leaders. And then in verses 14 and 15, we looked at this uh, several weeks ago. Paul gives instructions about how the church members are to relate to one another. Everyday life as part of a community of believers We have two more sections left. This morning, we're going to look at verses 16 to 18 of chapter 5, uh, particular responsibilities regarding worship, uh, the uh, congregation's uh, approach to God on that vertical level, and then in a a short time, we're going to be looking also at a very fascinating set of instructions given uh, to this church regarding prophecy in verses 19 to 22. As I've mentioned already, what is characteristic about this section uh, is is that it is made up of through these uh, 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 11 verses, from verses 12 to 22, 15 exhortations, 12 of which are made up of just a few words. And we're going to see that this morning in several of these exhortations. Paul is giving these these crisp injunctions that, that are really are captivating by means of their terseness. They're to the point, and, and Paul gives these to, to leave fresh and emboldened in their memories. Well, the text we're going to look at is in verses 16 to 18, and it reads as follows. Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you. In Christ Jesus. Paul now transitions from the horizontal responsibility of 15 to the vertical ones. So, in the previous set of these terse, crisp imperatives, Paul transitions from relationship duties that extend horizontally as they relate to relationships within the church, whether with leadership or with one another, he now transitions to talk about vertical responsibilities, responsibilities of the congregation to God. And these, these, these exhortations that he gives in these verses are, are, are really a triad of the most fundamental Christian responsibilities. It's interesting to note that back in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse verse 3 of this letter, we, we saw a different triad there, the triad of Christian virtue, where Paul speaks of faith and love and hope. 
And now as he can reflect the essence of Christianity in terms of, of how we are to, to live our lives, and these are rejoicing, praying, and the giving of thanks. Now, while each one of these responsibilities relates to the inner life, and as we, we're going to look through them, we're going to see that these are really very intimate issues because they deal with our attitude toward God at the, the most basic level. Nonetheless, it's important to note as we go through these that these are not just exhortations to isolated individual Christians. Sometimes it's easy to take this section and apply it just to individuals and say, this is my individual responsibility. Indeed, they are because they arise out of the individual soul, but the way that Paul includes them in this section indicates that this is corporate life and applied within the body, within within the, the regular life of the church. And this is important for us because, especially in our day, it is easy to think of the Christian life as as extremely individual, even as isolated. I don't need the church, I can do these things on my own. And and Paul would say, no, these things are best expressed and, and reach their beautiful expression when this is happening as part of regular body life. Another thing that we note about these this triad of obligations is that they reflect so much of Paul's basic instruction to all the churches. When you look through all of Paul's letters, we'll do just a little bit of that this morning, you're going to see these same responsibilities emphasized. Rejoicing, praying, and thanksgiving. You can summarize so much of the Christian life by those three things. Rejoicing, praying, and the giving of thanks. And the fact that they are found so frequently in such proximity. We're going to look at a few texts where you find that that Thanksgiving is mentioned alongside joy and prayer. And it's hard to separate them. Shows by virtue of the frequency that that this is fundamental Christianity. It's easy to focus on a lot of other things that we think we ought to do or give ourselves to. But this is really the building blocks. These are the foundations for healthy Christian living. In fact, I would just say that, that these pillars really express the, the key, if I can use it that way, to, to, to a healthy life in a fallen world. I'm not talking about physical life, I'm talking about one's spiritual, about a kind of, of health to the individual that will make all the difference in this fallen world. And this is so very important considering our culture's current obsession with all things therapeutic. In fact, different sociologists have coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism to refer to the religion of many professing Christians in North America today. Moralistic therapeutic deism, uh, this idea that yes, God exists, he's created an ordered a world, But God really just wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other. And that the central goal of life is to to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And and that God really isn't involved in all the details. Certainly, he's not ultimately sovereign over all of them. He's a standard. 
And that, in the end, it's the good people who just go to heaven when they die. That's, that, that characterizes so much of Christianity in the West today. And, and it's centered on this obsession with the self. That the highest priority is myself and the need for me to feel good. I need to feel good. I need to feel protected. I need to feel emboldened, enabled. I need to feel safe. And that kind of thinking has certainly invaded the church. And what Paul does here, by contrast, is teach us, as we're going to go through these foundational disciplines, he will teach us that true health is going to be found in a mind-splicitly theocentric, not anthropocentric, not self-centric. That the, the health that Paul has in mind here, the health of the soul is going to be found when the soul forgets itself and focuses on God as the center of all things. Now let's look at these in, in summary and we're going to work our way through them. Paul gives us three exhortations here as he details the responsibilities of church members to God. First of all, he is going to give us the exhortation to expand your soul's happiness. Expand your soul's happiness, verse 16. Then in verse 17, exercise your soul's dependence. And then thirdly, extend your soul's gratitude. So we'll talk about happiness or joy, dependence or prayer. Let's look at the first of these. Expand your soul's happiness. This is an exhortation. Expand your soul's happiness. The, the Christian life for the Apostle Paul is never a morose kind of life. And sometimes that's the perception. That, and, and, and sometimes we're guilty of, of uh, conveying that kind of an attitude, even in our evangelism, that that, that it's a morose kind of life. In fact, when you look at some of the, the paintings throughout church history, you, you typically see a lot in, in certain segments of Christianity, especially if you're in looking at Eastern Orthodoxy, of a very morose kind of life. That is not Paul's perception of the Christian life. Notice what he says in verse 16. Here we have a English Bible's our, our translation has flipped the word order because uh, we, we typically have the, the imperative first and, and then the adverb after that. But in the original, the, the adverb comes first for the sake of emphasis. And the adverb is always. Really, we would translate this as always rejoice. When Paul puts it up at the beginning part of the sentence, he emphasizes that particular element. Always Rejoice. Now, uh, what is key here, we, we understand what always is. Paul is, is saying that there has to be rejoicing that takes place all the time. He, he's not allowing any kind of, of compartmentalization of life, which says only on Sundays, or, or only when you're at the Bible study, or anything like that. No, this is a, this is a, a whole way of life. This, this is from Sunday through Saturday. Always, and the key verb here is to rejoice. And if we just translate that or, or, or define it 
simply would be this, to be in a state of happiness and well-being. So when the term was used in, in context outside the Bible, and as I'm going to note in just a minute, it was actually quite rare, and there's a reason for that, but it had this idea of to be in a state of happiness and well-being. Well, I want to take it a little bit further, and, and I was trying to, to come up with a better definition, and, and when all is said and done, I, I actually landed on a definition of, that, that comes from John Piper, who I think has written probably some of the best material on joy. And this is how John Piper has defined joy, and this is a very good scripture. He says this, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. It is a good feeling of the soul. Sometimes in our effort to try to, uh, to, try to resist uh, the, the, the extremes of the health, wealth, prosperity movement and so on, we will define the Christian life, as I said, in morose terms, that this, this, this joy is, is really sorrow, but it has a good perspective to it. That is, and that is what Paul is commanding here, that we are to cultivate this good feeling in the soul. This joy is, is a common theme in Paul's letters. It isn't just here in 1 Thessalonians that he commands it. We see him refer to it, teach on it in, in many different settings in his writings. Just a few of these. In, in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, he, 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 he calls upon the Roman believers to be rejoicing in hope. As he describes his own ministry in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, he does say this. He, he defines it as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Paul and his his ministry team had to deal with a lot of heartbreak, a lot of opposition. And yet at the same time, he says, in the midst of all that, always, as finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. As, as Paul gives some, again, some closing exhortations there in Philippians, using this term finally to really show some, draw some attention to this, his command right here is to rejoice in the Lord, and then he'll say it again in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Paul believed that despite suffering and hardship, which he, he was very familiar with those things, despite suffering and hardship, the Christian life was still, by far, to be one of rejoicing. He promises trials. He, he does say that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus from the world, and certainly opposition from the unredeemed flesh, but nonetheless, Paul firmly believed that the Christian life is a life of joy, unmistakable. Dominant in one's thinking and, and feeling. 
this good feeling of the soul. In fact, we could say this, joy is a defining characteristic, a distinguishing mark of true Christianity. Where where you find true Christianity, where there has taken place true regeneration, the conversion of souls, you will always find supernatural joy. You will always, despite the circumstances, you will find rejoicing in hope. It's what true Christianity is is all about. And what's fascinating to note on this point in particular, contrast to the general spirit of the age in which Paul wrote. In fact, when you look at the extra-biblical writing, what's interesting to note is, is that most of the occurrences of the Greek word kara, which means joy, most of the occurrences that you find in, in first, second, third centuries of, of Greek literature most of the occurrences of that term are found in Christian literature. It was found rarely in secular literature because in that day and age, the, the worldview, as it is today, was very pessimistic, was given over to despair and fatalism. And so the concept of true joy, a good feeling of the soul, was just really unheard of, and we certainly understand why. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. And Jesus Christ came to establish joy. We could look at numerous texts where, where this is, the, this is the, the, the teaching of Jesus. But look for a moment just at John 15 verse 11 when Jesus says to his disciples there in the, the, the upper room as he gives that farewell address to them. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, Jesus knows exactly what is going to happen to him just hours from that moment. Hours from that moment, he will be in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he will be sweating drops of blood because he knows the, the, the burden that he will bear as he atones for the sins of all who would ever believe. And yet, even in that dark hour, Jesus is focused on joy. On the good feeling of the soul to his disciples. And we also know that the Holy Spirit's ministry, his activity within us, is to produce joy. That's why he has been given to us. And we could look at numerous texts which associate the Holy Spirit with joy, but we are very familiar with this one Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 the fruit of the Spirit. The evidence that the Holy Spirit is active, the Holy Spirit is ministering, the, the Holy Spirit is living, dwelling within the inner man, is, is found in the virtues that are produced. And these are supernatural in nature. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and so on. Indeed, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul, produced by the Holy Spirit, as Piper said. And is fixated, another person who wrote a lot about joy was Augustine. I want to read a couple of quotes from him on this. He, he said this, No one is really happy merely because he has what he wants, but only if he wants things he ought to want. 
He is the one who said that every man is created with a a God-shaped vacuum in the soul and will not find rest until that is filled with the Creator, the Redeemer. He goes on to say this, There is a joy which is not given to the ungodly, but to those who love thee for thine own sake, whose joy thou thyself art. And this is the happy life, to rejoice to thee, of thee, for That summarizes Paul's perspective. You look and, and do a study of all the times that, that Paul describes Christian joy. It is always because of Christ. It is always produced by the Holy Spirit. It is, it is supernatural in nature, and it will always lead to this good feeling of the soul As that soul is centered not on self, as that soul is centered not on circumstances, that soul is centered not on pursuing feeling good for feeling good's sake, but is centered on Christ. John Newton also said this, they are the happiest Christians who have the lowest thoughts of themselves And in whose eyes Jesus is most glorious and precious. This is so much against the therapeutic moralism of today. Where it's all about feeling good because of oneself. In reality, the paradox is forget yourself. Forget yourself. Stop. Worrying about your circumstances. Tell somebody that today and that's offensive. But it's the truth. And focus your mind on Jesus Christ. And if you are one of his, the the guarantee is is that you will there find joy. And so when Paul gives this exhortation to rejoice always, this is not just some pie in the sky, some kind of of motivational speaking on Paul's part. This is truth. And it requires faith to embrace. This is the true picture of, of health. Rejoicing always. Some applications here. Number one, increasing joy is to be the Christian experience in everything, not just when it is easy. That Paul commands joy automatically assumes that he's speaking of the hard times. Because if, if he was just speaking of the good times, there would be no need to, to give such a command. If all he wants is for you to feel joyful in the easy times, why the command? It would remove the whole basis for that. So we can tell that Paul is focused specifically as he instructs these Thessalonians, he's focused on the, the hard times. In fact, we could go back to chapter 1, verse 6, when we read of of how the Thessalonians first came to Christ, receiving the word amid, would go on, and in in chapter 2, Paul describes how they suffered and were suffering from the hands of their own countrymen. So these Thessalonians are in a place of hardship, ostracism, slander, all kinds of things, even from their own neighbors, and Paul says, in spite of that. In spite of all the consequences that you are facing, you you must increase in your joy. Be joyful always. 
Number two, beware of your own self as the greatest killjoy. What's a killjoy? Killjoy is that person who spoils the pleasure of others. You know, you'll have that time when you're, you're in, a, in a group of people and you're all having a great time and talking about some kind of event or something and somebody will be there to, to drop the bomb, you know, and it just, boom, it, it's over and everybody walks away you know, sullen. Well, our greatest is ourself and beware of that. Beware of that. Your flesh seeks to bring you back to the old way of looking at life. It, it seeks to bring you back to that kind of lifestyle which, which uh, fixates on, on my circumstances and how they need to be better. And until they're better, I will be angry. Thirdly, understand this. To remain in regular, lengthy periods of sadness transgression transgresses the will of God. To remain in these lengthy, regular periods of sadness of soul indicates a, a failure to, to, to cling to the promises of God, to embrace who He is, that He is sovereign, that He is good, and that He is working together for your good and His glory. Fourthly, the more we know God, particularly as revealed in Christ, the happier our soul will be. Again, this is, this is a theocentric approach. If your search for joy is based on self and, and probing the depths of your own person and, and seeking joy by defending yourself and loving yourself and having great esteem, you will never arrive at joy. You won't. But the more you embrace self-forgetfulness and instead pursue the knowledge of God, particularly as He has revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, there you will find joy. Secondly, exercise your soul's dependence. Paul says this, pray without... The qualifying element of the sentence is actually first in word order in the original to put emphasis on that. Paul isn't just saying pray, he's saying without ceasing pray, persistently, consistently, constantly. The emphasis is there. And that word for pray, that verb, is one of these comprehensive terms that describes all different kinds of forms of approach to God. It doesn't just highlight intercession or petition, what it does is it embraces all the different kinds of prayer under one term. It speaks of going to God directly, approaching Him reverently. And what this does, this prayer highlights a very important truth. Prayer highlights the Christian he prays. Now, You've often heard it said, uh, probably, that the lack of prayer is the Christian's declaration of independence. Prayer is the Christian's declaration of dependence. And that for which we pray directly evidences that about which we feel dependence. Now, dependency is not a bad thing. In fact, again, in our world today, they will tell you that dependency is wrong. 
And certainly, there are many forms of dependency in this world that are evil. But what the Scripture teaches is that we must exercise, we must cultivate an ever-increasing sense of dependency, and that is going to be reflected in our day. It's this, the, the term without ceasing does not mean some sort of formal, non-stop praying. Rather, it implies constantly recurring prayer growing out of a settled attitude of dependence on God. Whether words are uttered or not, lifting the heart to God while occupied with miscellaneous duties is the vital thing. Verbalized prayer will be spontaneous and will punctuate one's daily schedule, end quote. What he's emphasizing is this. Sometimes when we look at prayer, we think of it in terms of that time that is set aside during the day for a, a specific amount of prayer, and that's how we look at prayer. And so you could ask, how, how much do you pray? Well, I pray 15 minutes a day, something like that. That is not what Paul is getting at here. In this sense of dependency, what he's referring to is a lifestyle, a, a, a kind of living that at different moments and at acknowledgement of dependency upon God, that in the midst of that situation, I need him, I need his wisdom, I need his protection, I need his provision, I need his grace, I need his cleansing. And that need not be these these lengthy formal times when you're in a prayer closet, these are times that are all over and everywhere. Because God himself is everywhere. And in our acknowledgement, it means that we can address him in these moments of prayer, whether in the freeway, at work, as you're jogging and exercising, uh, whatever it may be, that these are times when when you can express that dependency directly to him. And again, in Paul's letters, this is a common theme. Paul says in Romans 12, 12, again, be devoted to prayer. In Philippians 4, verse 6, he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, this is important to recognize that after Paul has just said, rejoice always, some might just walk away from that and think, how can I be happy when I'm so needy? I do have needs. And this second, this second exhortation covers that. That as we seek joy, that good feeling of the soul, we will come against challenges. We will recognize the limitations of our ability very quickly. But Paul has not left us just to stew in that. He said, well, here is now what you do is you seek joy you, you take the needs to God in prayer. Colossians 4 verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. The same concept there of, of, of devotion. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Which he himself did not pursue. So we see that even in 1 Thessalonians, he says, and in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. In that same letter, he's going to go on to say how he had to work with his hands night and day. So you might say, well, Paul, how can you, how can you pray to God always and at the same time work night and day with your hands? Well, you can imagine Paul there at the, at the Agora, the, the marketplace, as he's got his little kiosk, and people are coming to him for, for services in leather making and binding and sewing and, and making of, of leather instruments. And as Paul is cutting and, and sewing and so on, 
he's praying, as he's interacting with people, the, the, the times that he has a pause in, in the busyness, he's, he's praying. That's the life of Paul. He also goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 3, that we may see your face. Once again, Paul believed that this ever-increasing sense of dependency is critical for the Christian life. It is another sine qua non of Christian living. It, it is a distinguishing characteristic of real Christianity, that where real Christianity is and where it is growing, there corresponds to that growth this ever-increasing, intensifying sense of dependency. Now, these Thessalonians would have been somewhat familiar with prayer when you think of it. They came from an idolatrous background, and, and certainly within their background and the, the worship of the, the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, there was a lot of praying. But the difference here was that the, the, the Christian prayer was a praying that happened at the temples. No, Christian prayer comes from a, a conviction that, that God is a God who loves to give his children good things. That we approach him not to manipulate. We approach him not as, as some stern, hard-to-deal-with father. No, Christian prayer is unique. And this is why Paul so strongly commended prayers. That we look at who God is. And he is the gracious father. As Jesus describes him in Luke eleven thirteen. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly Father will give you good things. It's this assumption that our God is not mean. Our God is gracious. And He really does long to give children that which is best for them. And He relishes answering those their prayers for those things. This is Trinitarian in nature in that we could look at the fact that, again, Jesus Christ, not only did he come to bring us joy, but Jesus Christ is the one who even intercedes in our praying. We know that that is what he does even now. Hebrews 7 verse 25, a text that we're going to look at next week and on Easter Sunday, the current ministry of, of Jesus is that he is there to, to take our prayers and make them perfect. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And we also know that it's the Holy Spirit who is empowering our praying. Ephesians 6 verse 18, to try to, and Paul would say, no, you're doing it wrong. You can't do this on your own. You are dependent on the strengthening provided by the Holy Spirit, and God has given you Him. Rely on the Spirit's enablement. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Prayer is, beyond any question, the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. And when he does, there you find true health. You find peace for your soul. Coming to him in 
in sincere dependency, recognizing that apart from him you can do nothing. Communing with him in that as well as, you, as, as we address our needs and petitions to God. Some applications here too. Christian growth, it's important to note, is about mortifying the attitude of, of independence. This is one of the great battles we have as we go through the process of sanctification and the renewal of our minds. It is about mortifying that self-reliance, this idea that I can do it. We're, we're like children that will, will always say to the parent, no, I'll do this, thinking that that is the best way. We are so much like that, and our growth will happen as we pursue the opposite, as we, in that daily routine of life, at, at, at all kinds of times throughout the day, we're constantly acknowledging our need for God, our dependency on Him. And it's not, I can do this, but focused dependency should then permeate all that we do, not just spiritual things, but also the, the routine things that we do throughout the day, Working, driving, relaxing, God-focused dependency, as Paul says, he says it, it should permeate everything. He says, pray without ceasing. And as I've already said, this praying is not just expressed in informal prayer times when, when you're articulating careful sentences and, and expressing those to God, but this is going to be even in those moments that that can't even be measured in time or in words, but that sense in which you commune with God as you recognize dependency, and he hears it, he knows it. Finally, giving up on prayer is not an option. You'll hear people talk about that some, sometimes. I, I pray an option. So we're to expand our soul's happiness. We are to exercise our soul's dependence. Third, we are to extend our soul's gratitude. Paul says this in the beginning of verse 18, and everything, give thanks. Here, our translations have the right word order. In everything comes first in order to, again, place emphasis that this giving of thanks is not to be limited to certain times in the day or certain kinds of experiences or circumstances. This is in everything. Paul is being absolute here. We, we can't say, well, Paul couldn't have foreseen my, my circumstances. So obviously, he's, he's not speaking of that. No, Paul is giving an absolute command. But notice he says, he says that it's not necessarily for everything. Certainly, we will experience the consequences of sin. Do we thank God for that? The, the, the sin, no, it's not. We, we may face the, 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 the injustices of others. Do we thank God specifically for the exercise of injustice in this world and so on and so forth? No, Paul says in everything. It, it's the sphere. In everything where you find yourself, in that, give thanks. This is a present tense imperative. It goes together with, with that prepositional phrase. It is, it is an always and every time kind of thanksgiving. And again, this also permeates Paul's teaching. He says in Ephesians verse, verses, chapter 5, verse 4, he says, There should be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, but rather the giving of thanks. He says in Philippians 4, verse 6, we've read this already, but he says, be Let your requests be made known to God. 
Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Again, Paul taught that thanksgiving is crucial to understand the Christian life and that no circumstance or experience can be written off as ultimately harmful to your eternal existence. Gratitude directly acknowledges God's sovereignty, His his wisdom, and even His ultimate causation. Let me say that again. Gratitude to God in every circumstance acknowledges God's sovereignty. It acknowledges His wisdom and it acknowledges His ultimate causation. And word specifically brings us to a text like Romans 8, 28, which says this. And we know that what? God causes all things. All things. Again, absolute. And this is why Paul is able to say, in everything, give thanks. It is because of God's causation. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. Gratitude, therefore, becomes another distinguishing mark of real Christianity. That you'll know a Christian, because of this ability. Again, Paul isn't saying be thankful just when you get the bonus or you know when something turns out well. We, we can find an ease in giving thanks for the good things, the easy things, when things turn out as we wished. But Paul gives this command specifically to apply in the midst of all those circumstances which logic might tell us, no, I cannot be thankful in this. The circumstance is too hard. The the life I'm in right now, the context that I'm in right now, too hard. It's not what Paul is speaking and Paul would say, "Uh uh-uh, I gave the command specifically for that. Specifically. We could say this, that the spiritless life, the life of an unbeliever is characterized specifically by ingratitude. Romans 1.21 speaks of that, that even though they knew God, they did not honor Him nor give thanks. That's, that's what marks an unbeliever. The life that is in tune with the, the rule of the Holy Spirit is a life that will produce an ever-increasing amount of gratitude. And Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 5, 18 to 20, when he says this, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And then consequential to that, he goes on to say, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. To help put this... Again, in in other words, and, and, and to help us understand, Jerry Bridges summarizes it this way. He says, thankfulness to God is a recognition that God, in His goodness and faithfulness, has provided for us and cared for us both physically and spiritually. It is a recognition that all that we are and have comes from Him. Some final applications here. 
Understand this, number one, pride suffocates gratitude. Stop giving yourself the credit for the good things that you enjoy. Let's start with those good things. And if you are prone to pride, you will not be a thankful person. And if you're not a thankful person, it means you're prone to pride. Pride suffocates gratitude. Root it out in order to grow, in order to extend your soul's gratification. Number two, improve your memory. Improve your memory. In fact, you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, and there's so many exhortations to what? To remember. And that's what we need to do. And if it means setting up stones in your yard, set up stones and and, and use those as memory joggers. But also, all those other times when in the midst of some dark circumstance where you thought it was all out of control, that he so amazingly delivered you from that. And now you look back on that and say, in the midst of that, though he, he, there, was, there was so much darkness in the midst of that, I would never want to do anything but go through that again because of what God did for me. Remember. Thirdly, increase your sensitivity that, that awareness, that vigilance, which is always looking for things to be thankful for. Yeah, free parking spot, you know, at Costco or something like that. It's, you know, or here on Sunday morning, you know. I don't have to walk a, a mile, you know. Give thanks to God. But that, that kind of sensitivity that even says, you know, I, somebody said something to me which I hadn't thought of before, and it really helped. Your gratitude could be easy. And finally, find the reason. Thanksgiving may not always be for, but it is always in. Thanksgiving in all things. And sometimes it requires more than just the reflex of, of, of just feeling the pain of the circumstance. It takes, a, it takes more thought. And it, it is, okay, what is God doing here? What, where, is he, where is he taking me as he takes me towards conformity to Jesus Christ? Find the reason in all. Finally, there is a final phrase here that is important to remember. And we'll close with this. At the end of verse 18, there's the basis for all of this, for all three commands, and it is God's will. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus the this gratitude, but it points back to all three of these imperatives. To the necessity of soul happiness. To the necessity of soul dependence. And to the necessity of soul gratitude. All of these things are the will of God. And when Paul writes this here, when he says this is God's will, he's indicating this is not just some human philosophy. This is not something that, you know, some men somewhere up in a mountain have decided as a, as a way to order life that will lead to the best possible results. No, this is God's will. It means this is God's revealed word on the matter. And, and sometimes we can distract ourselves with so many questions about trying to figure out God's will in this area and that area where he has not spoken and we forget his word and it is life-changing. The implementation of these things changes everything in life. 
And sometimes what we ought to tell people when they're trying to figure out God's will in some obscure issue and they're, they're all wound up and discouraged and, and, and fretting over it is to say, hey, brother or sister, let me tell you what God's will is for this. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. And you know what? If you just pursue these things, the rest is going to work itself out. Finally, one final Note here, this is all in Christ Jesus. Hopefully you've seen so far that none of these things are possible if it depends upon the human flesh. All of these things are only possible through union with Jesus Christ. First and foremost, and dependence on the Father and the giving of thanks in all things. He is the ultimate model And then, more than that, not only did he just model it, that is one thing, that still wouldn't make it possible for us, but through his atoning work and what God does in in the supernatural work of, 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 of salvation is that he unifies us with Christ. And now these things, which seem so impossible to do, are now all possible because we are connected with this life. This is God's will for you. Let's pray. Once again, Father, we are thankful for the clear the, the clear text which you have the path that we must follow that gives us the promises the guarantees of soul health through these things. And yet we also confess that we've known this text for a long time. These are very familiar words. And we have so often forgotten. And we affirm these things with our mouths on Sundays and live the rest of the week forgetting We pray you take these words and press them deeply into our lives. Father, we need you to remind us of these things. Bring these words to our mind so that we might come to live the life that you have designed for us, a life of joy and dependency and gratitude. And that most of all, Jesus Christ would be glorified as we are increasingly conformed to his image. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.